are listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Today we welcome Brandon Rolo, a freelance writer who shares his love of books and reading by sharing a slice of history. He is a historical reenactor at Locust Grove, a 55-acre estate and mansion from the late 1700s. He felt he needed authentically made books to enhance his performance as an 18th century gentleman. So, he decided to make them himself. Thus began his book bindery, Strano Books. His books are bound the way books were produced in the 18th and 19th century, the time of the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen. He explains the process of making his books, how he almost lost a finger to his craft, and why artisan items are worth the cost. This episode, we wish you could be in the studio with us so you could smell the aroma. Imagine a cross between old book scent with the musky leather of a new pair of boots. His volumes are beautiful as well, with covers under richly marbled papers and leather corners and spines. Join us today as we get a mini history lesson about the physical art of making books. Carrie and I want to welcome to the studio Brandon Villarolo, who is a bookbinder with Strano Books, and he makes books like they did in the 18th and 19th century, and he is currently the artist in residence at Historic Locust Grove. Welcome, Brandon. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name's Brandon Villarolo, like you said, and you pronounced it perfectly. Um, <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> and so I am, I'm originally from Michigan. Um, my wife and I moved down here to Louisville in 2013 when she took a job uh, at a small company called Custom Wig Company. So she's a wig maker. She does handmade wigs, a lot of, a lot of stage productions, impersonators, you know, a lot of Santa Clauses, wow. um, a lot of people like that. So we came down here for that job. I had gone to college as a philosophy and English major. So I wanted to write, ideally, but I had fallen into IT work. So came down here, was working in IT, and finally I was like, you know, I'm going to do the writing thing. Started freelance writing, uh, and we also then started volunteering at Historic Locust Grove. I realized after being at Locust Grove for a while and playing one of the members of the family part, you know, you're, you're interpreting history for people. That's a lot of fun. But... I wanted to do some more hands-on stuff with history. And so I started looking around at different trades that were around back then. One of the things I'd always really loved was, was historic books and bookbinding. I said, let me look into this and see how I can do this, if I, if I can do this. And uh, the biggest hurdle to jump in getting started was a lot of the large equipment, like the presses and the sewing frame, a lot of this big, heavy wood equipment that when I looked online was going to cost me, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Uh, and I realized that I had a garage full of scrap wood and a lot of power tools that I'd acquired over the years. My dad was a carpenter. I do a lot of stuff with wood. So I built all my own tools and uh, saved myself a lot of money and just got started and it's been about three years now, and I've not looked back, really. For listeners who may not know, can you describe what Historic Locust Grove is? Yeah, so Historic Locust Grove is a, 
as a historic home. It was a it was originally like a 700 acre farm. Now there's 50 acres left, and on it, the centerpiece of the place is a house that was built in 1792, uh, and it was the the final home of George Rogers Clark, who a lot of people might know as the founder of Louisville, several parks and bridges named after him, Clarksville across the river. And uh, and he lived there for the last few years of his life with his sister's family, uh, the Crons. And so it's kind of become, since the 1960s, this really important kind of cultural site for the history of Louisville, since not only the founder lived there, but one of the wealthiest families in town kind of made this their, their county seat. You said that you and your wife started doing historic reenactments. Had you all always had an interest in that, or was this totally new? I mean, it was definitely something that, you know, given the right environment, would have probably happened eventually. We're both really into history. We're both really into, into historic fashion. Um, my wife uh, was a costuming minor uh, in the theater department at Michigan State University. And so she's always had a love for clothes. And once we once we went there our first time as part of the Jane Austen Festival for her company, it was like, all right, this is inevitable. We're going to probably end up spending a lot of our time here. So tell us a little bit about the machinery that you made. So you said you had a little bit of experience with carpentry. Did you have to do a lot of research? I had already bought a couple books on the history of bookbinding and the equipment required. Um, sort of the cornerstone book that I learned off of was by a woman named Edith Deal, who wrote this just phenomenal two-volume book back in the early 20th century on the history of and then the process of bookbinding, uh, traditional bookbinding. And so I did do a lot of research in terms of, okay, what is the minimum kind of equipment that I need to get started? Because I didn't want to just, I didn't want to go to an online store and buy some modern equipment because I knew that my objective in doing this was to create historic books and I wanted to be able to do it in a correct fashion. So I figured, okay, all wood equipment, you know, cast iron if I have to get that, but I want to go as correct as I can. And a lot of the old pictures were all wooden equipment. So I researched to figure out the kind of basic stuff I needed, which was a sewing frame, which is basically a flat piece of wood with two wooden screw pieces coming off, and a bar that goes across that can be raised and lowered by turning a couple little handles on there, so it raises the bar to tighten the cords you use to sew the book together on. And so I needed that and a small press, and I was like, all right, I didn't have to do any research on what I needed to do. Like, I, I could figure out from the pictures how to construct them. Really, the only thing I really had to buy to get all this done was a, uh, a little tool from woodcrafters that will um, thread wood and then make screws, basically. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, my head, I'm just like trying to visualize all this. And it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. So you had an interest. And then when you first had this idea that you wanted to do this, did you think that this was going to become a job or profession? Or was it just to kind of make the the reenactments a little more interesting while you were doing them? Yeah, I didn't, I definitely didn't start off as thinking that I was going to turn this into a part-time job. One of my big reasons for getting into bookbinding uh, were well, kind of threefold. First off, and she's going to probably remember this when I say it and be angry at me again. But uh, <laughs> my uh, my friend Amy, who's the, or the director of the cast at Locust Grove for the reinterpreters, she said she wanted a copy of Cato. Um, which is a play that was one of the favorites of George Washington's, and he apparently had it put on while they were overwintering at Valley Forge. And um, the master of Locust Grove, William Cron, had served alongside Washington, and they knew each other. So she's like, I want to get a copy of Cato. That we, Brandon, can you, can you print something off and just slap it together a pamphlet? And I'm like, okay, okay. So then I started looking into what I needed to do to make period crack pamphlets. And this is before the whole bookbinding thing started. And I was like, oh, man you know, I could just find a full volume of Cato and like learn to bookbind. And so, you know, that was kind of one of the impetuses for that. The other one was I uh, had always been interested in historic books that people use at reenactments. I've always loved seeing the old books that people have and look and use, but then a lot of them, you're either using something that is clearly not period correct. I mean, there was a hard shift in how most books were constructed during the Victorian period. And, you know, there's definitely a divide on either side of what book is what. And you can 
not always tell. Some, I mean, people still made traditionally bound books in that period, but when you get into the 20th century, most stuff's not bound correctly, and it's obvious. Even to someone who doesn't know much about the history of books, just being familiar with what old books look like, you're going to know that's not an old book. And so people would have those, or they would have antiques out there. And I was always like, no, you need books that look antique, but look new. You know, they don't look like a hundred-year-old book. They look like something you went to the store and you bought last week. Um, so I also wanted to get into bookbinding for that reason, because I was like, I want to I be able to have some good-looking books. And my character that I play at Locust Grove is Dr. John Cron. He's the eldest son of the family. He was a doctor. He owned Mammoth Cave later on. He was well-read and apparently was really into the classics. And I'm like, I need to have some books to have out here with me. So that was that. The last kind of third reason I got into it was that I really like collecting weird old books and like unusual ones. Like I have a lot of, none of them are original. They're all ones that I found. But I have a lot of old like medieval texts on magic I've always found really fascinating and like old books of jokes and things like that. All these weird old books that you don't see very often and you can't get decent copies of. So I'm like, well, if I want these books, I'm going to have to make them myself. And so those were kind of the three big reasons that I started looking into bookbinding as a, as a hobby. Amy still hasn't gotten her Kato's, by the way. Uh, but, and that's what she's going to, she's going to hear this and she's going to be like, all right. You're going to remind her. Yeah, well, I'm doing it to myself. Yeah, so I just kind of got rolling and um, pretty soon I had people at Locust Grove asking me if, if I would make a book for them here or there. And so I had a few people that would ask for notebooks. I do a lot of blank books. I never know what's going to sell print book-wise, so I'll make some of those and have them around. Like I sold a bunch of reprinted facsimile Jane Austens at the Jane Austen Festival. But most of the time, if I'm going to bind books to bind, I'm binding blank ones because I know journals are going to sell. Um, so I had a few people buy those, and I'm like, you know, I think maybe I could turn this into a, a little part-time side gig for myself. And that's pretty much what I've done. It doesn't make me a lot of money. I don't, you know, I don't pay my bills with this, the freelance writing is my full-time job. That is what kind of gets me through the week. But the beauty of it is that I've been able to set my own schedule, been able to get enough work done and still have a quarter of the week or, you know, a third of the week to, to bind books at Locust Grove. And it's been phenomenal. So this is really a, a passion, yeah. not a, a huge money maker. No, it's my jobby, <laughs> I call it, because it's, you know, it's, it's a job, it's enough of a job that I'm, I, I treat it like work. And it pays for itself. So it's, you know, I treat it like work, but it basically is work that's self-sustaining. So I can keep learning and getting better and occasionally buy new tools, you know, or occasionally upgrade some stuff. Like I'm working on a new press and a plow for cutting paper right now. That I used to have a press made out of old scrap wood and it was starting to fall apart. So I decided, oh, I'm going to get some more wood because I had a really good event uh, a few weeks ago at the Johnson Festival. So I'm like, all right, I can buy some more stuff. You know, the slight upgrades here and there, but for the most part, it's just it keeps itself going without me having to pay for it myself. How long did it take you to build the machinery that you needed? And then also, how long did it take you to perfect making a book? I say this as a person who sometimes I like to think I'm crafty, and I'll I'll try a craft, and, you know, it's like a Pinterest fail or whatever. Like, it takes <laughs> a lot of practice to make something that looks really good. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, I mean, it, for, for me, okay, so the equipment didn't take me too long to make because I really – I just tried to see what the bare minimum I had, I could, I had to do was. So I made a very simple press out of some scrap two by fours and a couple little screw handles. I made a sewing frame out of really poor quality dowels and some scrap that I that I used to build a coffin for Locust Grove that I had left over it was just a piece of really old oak and it was it looked horrible, but it worked, you know. So <laughs> I knocked those out probably in a weekend. Okay. Um, it was a pretty quick process. And the actual bookbinding part, I look back at ones I even bound earlier in the year. And I'm just like, my God, like I, I've made some huge leaps. And a lot of that is, so I'm self-taught. You know, I didn't have a chance to 
mentor with anybody. I never went got formal training for this. It's completely on my own. Luckily, I've met quite a few other bookbinders who specialize. There's there's a, there's more than one of us out there who. <laughs> well, I was wondering, yeah. is there like a society for bookbinders? Yeah, or? there's a lot of traditional bookbinding okay. still. Most traditional bookbinders are, you know, they're restorers. If they're going to do it full time, they're in restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons I'll probably never go full time is I don't. I, I'll rebind books and I don't mind tearing them apart. And seeing that they were constructed the same way that I'm making mine, it's always validating to see, hey, wow, this 200-year-old book is done the same way I did mine. But uh, I like to make new books. So, uh, so yeah, there are some of us out there, but not too many that are actually like, hey, we craft books specifically to look and feel like period texts. So. Getting, getting good at it took, I mean, it's taken me a few years to get to the point where I would say that I'm comfortable saying these are decent looking books and I, a lot of that like I said I didn't have a teacher a lot of that has come through exposure to other book binders who see my work said this is really good but you know if you want to do it historically correct this needs to be done this way or like I found out that my marbled papers that I was using for the covers weren't correct um, so I found a place in England that actually reproduces the styles of marbled papers with the same kind of colors and looks as 18th and 19th century papers so now I can say with some degree of certainty that these look right you know it's it's a very it's a learning process I'm always figuring other things out that I didn't realize um, little things that make it better and look more authentic can you explain to us the process I know you've brought books that are in different stages so can you describe for us each of the stages sure sure so the first thing if it's a blank book it's just getting the paper together folding it you know, and getting the amount of pages you want. You know, like with a printed book, I I pull old digital copies off the internet. I clean them up in Adobe Acrobat to make sure there's no splotches or or marks on them. Print them off, get them folded up just like one of these books, and then uh, they get sewn together. And so this is a this is a real contrast with modern book binding is most modern books aren't sewn. Once in a while you'll get a hardcover book, you'll open it up, and in the middle of a signature, which is one of those groups of folded over paper, you'll see thread. So that still happens sometimes today, but by and large, sewing books isn't the norm. And even less normal is sewing them on cords like this. So um, the reason old books have those bumps on the spine isn't for aesthetics. It's actually purely a function of the way books are bound. So all the books had cords they were sewn on. So I use basically just an old hemp cord that gets strung over my sewing frame and, and tightened up. And then I use linen thread that I basically just wrap a loop around each cord. And then I just add signature after signature, and basically I'm, I'm adding paper on, looping around, adding paper on, looping around. So the whole book is sewn together. You know, there's no page that's going to fall out of the middle of this unless you really want it to. Modern books, though, are they glued? Or you said this is not the way modern books are made. They're not, not often, sewn. Yeah. So how they're, are they? How, typically they're glued. They're glued. Yeah, typically okay. that's that's why, like, especially like soft covers mm-hmm. or cheap, um, cheap hardcover books, you know, you're using them, and all of a sudden you'll crack the spine. Mm-hmm. And... Next thing you know, pages are falling mm-hmm. out from where you crack the spine because there's nothing holding them there except the glue. And once the glue is destroyed, pages start falling out. Um, with these, you know, you've like I said, you've really got to work to get one page out of these things. It's mm-hmm. it's they're in there pretty good. Is there anything special about the paper that makes it? Yeah. Um, so I m- my paper is not 100% period correct, and that's because if I wanted it to be, it would probably be cost prohibitive. Paper uh, in most books back then, until about the beginning of the of the 19th century, was exclusively uh, rag paper. So it was kind of like the same thing dollar bills are made out of. They're made out of rag paper. So it's cotton or linen fibers that are fermented for a little bit. And then they're, or they're raised out of the uh, vat on this tray that's actually made out of a whole bunch of slivers of metal and wood. So if you look at old paper, you'll see this texture that's like lines on them. Not quite linen, but it's, there's a definite texture to it. And that's because of the way the paper was made. And so that's called laid paper. So if you look at a book from the late 18th century, early 19th century, chances are it's going to be cotton and it's going to be on laid paper. So I have a partial cotton laid paper in mind. So it it mimics the look and feel of a period paper, but it's not 100% cloth because I just, 
cannot afford that paper. It's just too darn expensive. Um, so after they're sewn together, the next part is trimming them up. So right now I just use a, an old leather cutting knife to trim the books basically by hand. I put them in my big lying press, which basically is two four by fours lying side by side that get screwed together. And then the books go in there. I take a knife and I trim them all down to the size that I want. So like you can see on the side of this one, there's some pencil marks there and that's where I'll trim it to, to get it to the size that I want. Um, once it's trimmed, the spine gets glued. And uh, I use an animal hide glue for that, which is the traditional glue they used back in the period. It's basically a lot like gelatin. It, it smells a lot like gelatin. I, don't, I was going to say taste, but I've never tasted it. And I really don't have any <laughs> desire a, to. It has a definite smell. Yeah. yeah. It, have you used it before? Well, no, but I have I have used gelatin. I'm yeah. I'm a baker. And so I've used gelatin, and it has that very barnyard yeah. smell to it. And this it. is like that times like 100 yeah. because it mm -hmm. is just super concentrated. Usually rabbit skin is the most common. So it's rabbit skin glue. comes in like a crystalline form. Basically, you, you know, when you're making it, you just boil the hide down until all you have left is that gelatin, mm -hmm. dry it out, I rehydrate it, and it turns into basically a really thick grainy jello that I then put in like a little double boiler glue pot, put over a fire and melt. And then that gets brushed on the spine. And the reason for the rabbit hide glue is, as far as I understand, is that it just, it's very, very rigid when it dries. So it allows you to shape the book well, because the spine has to get rounded. That's another one of those qualities of antique books that we don't really think about, is the rounding of the back was there again for a reason. It wasn't just an aesthetic thing. When you sew a book together like this, you can see, so at the spine, it's thicker than it is at the at the front of the page because you've got folded over paper, you've got thread, you've got everything kind of bulking that up. So you got to distribute that bulk out over the spine um, in order to make the book actually square. So I distribute the spine out, round it, and then I put these lips on it, like a little lip ridge on the edge of the uh, spine so that when I lay the coverboard on, it'll be flush with the end of the spine and it won't stick, the coverboard won't stick out. Um, then the cover gets attached and the cover is attached using the same cords that it was sewn on with. So I just take most of the bulk out of those cords until I left with some small fibers. I then um, paste those down using a wheat starch paste. Um, that's the glue that I use to put on the leather, put on the marble paper, and do all the rest of the work. Is just a same plain old wheat starch. If you've put up wallpaper before, uh, you've used wheat starch paste. It like corn starch, mix it with water, heat it up, and it turns into paste. Covers go on. Then I sew the headbands on. You know, most people are familiar with like uh, headbands on on modern hardcovers. They'll have like that little colored stripe mm -hmm. of, of uh, cloth. And in this period. Uh, they were still hand sewn. So nowadays, when you're going to go buy headbanding, even if you go to most modern book supply stores, you get a roll of it. You trim off the width that you need and you just glue it to the spine. Um, but in this period, it was just basically, it was silk thread wrapped around another cord. So I wrap it, I puncture it into the to the spine to keep it in place. Get a nice little sewn headband like that. And at this point, the book is bound except for having the cover. And so the covers, typically I do like a half calf, uh, which is the corners and the spine of the book. Uh, and then the marble paper over top of that. Um, sometimes I do full leather, not super often, usually only for commissions. And I have to thin the leather down. So I buy really thin calf hide. Uh, and then I still have to thin it more because even at the one ounce weight, which is you know, less than a penny thick, it's still too thick to, to fold over well. If you fold it over, it's gonna, it's gonna bubble, it's gonna bump, it's not gonna lay flat. So I shave it with a knife so that it'll crease well and fold and then there won't be any bumps on the edge of the spine and the leather will disappear under the marbled paper without there being any kind of disturbance in the in the look of the book. Uh, and then I just slap the cover on and uh, get the end papers glued in and then you go, you got a book. So it's about eight hours of work start to finish. And there's also a pretty little red satin ribbon. Oh yeah, I Is do the... put bookmarks in most of them too, yeah. <laughs> and so then that's sewn into the... It's glued on. Glued actually. on. Yep. Okay. Yep. Same time I'm attaching the cover boards, usually I'll put the bookmark on. I just take a little paste with my finger and just put it on there and, and make sure it's solid and that, that'll hold it in place. 
So when you came in, you had mentioned about the heat having an impact on the mm-hmm. glue. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I th- I'm assuming it's the glue. Like I, I couldn't be 100% certain. I notice it more in old, in the books that I make than modern books. You know, take a modern book out there and lay it in the sun. It's not going to, nothing really is going to happen to it. These, when it gets too humid or too hot, sometimes the covers will bend a little bit. And so I've, I've always told people when they're buying stuff for me in the summertime, I'm like, this is not normal. This is, it's the heat, I swear. You know, you, you take your book back and it'll, it'll flatten out. And my wife's always like, you can't do that. Like, they're not going to, they're not even going to notice. But is it something where people who do purchase your book should maybe be a little bit more careful with them? Yeah. So I try to tell people, especially like when younger people are buying them, like sometimes I'll get parents buying them for their teenagers or, you know, younger people wanting them. Uh, I always tell them more than the adults because I think the adults know more how to treat a book. I tell people to be gentle with them. The animal hide glue is very stiff. These don't these don't lie flat like a modern book. You're never going to be able to put this down on the table and, and hold it open. They don't work like that. And that was one of the kind of the, the problems of, of period book binding or, or books in that period in general was they they didn't lie flat. They didn't behave like modern books. So I always tell people to be gentle with them. Like I've had a book, a notebook that I've been using for a couple of years now, and it's so flexible that I can I can pretty much lay it flat on a table and hold it down and write on it. But a new book, you really can't do that too. You just got to give it some time to loosen up and kind of the leather to relax, just like any anything made with leather and, and you know, hard glues and stuff. Just got to give it some time. When you came in, Amy and I <laughs> grabbed one of the books and started smelling it because <laughs> it smells wonderful. Now we're complete book nerds, but they do have just a wonderful scent about them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Like I was, I was saying actually after you were you were kind of saying, oh my God, we're smelling your books. And I was like, no. And you, I think you asked, is, is that something that people do? And it's absolutely. Like my shop at Locust Grove, I'm in one of the outbuildings called The Residence. Uh, and if you've ever been to Locust Grove uh, and you know where the kitchen is, it's the building, it's like in that long row of buildings that's attached to the kitchen right right next to it with the door on the other side. And so, yeah, it's it smells of leather in there a lot. I spend a lot of time shaving leather. And that means there's tons of little leather, leather particles and dust lying around. And it just, sometimes I walk in there and the windows have been closed for a few days if I haven't swept up. It's just like, oh man, this is... This is great. Yeah, it smells like fresh calf leather. It's yeah, it's a wonderful smell. So, would you say that that's the part that is the most time consuming? Is the leather? Probably. Yeah. Um. That that takes a lot of time, especially if I'm working on a lot of books, because I've got usually, you know, four. These are corners. These little pieces that I brought to show you. They're just going to be attached like that. Um. Then I've also got a spine piece that's yay big or so wide in the height of the book, and so I have to do that as well. So it's basically like it's five pieces of leather per book. You know, I I spend a lot of time pairing my leather. I've seen other historic book binders and other historic books that the leather's not paired it's thin as mine there are some bumps under under the paper or whatever i just am really particular about that so i probably spend more time working my leather than i need to now that i've gotten good at it it took me two two and a half years to get to the point where i could do it without ruining every other piece of leather Mm. um because i use a real sharp knife and i'm just basically sitting there and, and sliding this knife over the leather over and over again to try and get it thinned down. And it's very easy to pierce it, very easy to ruin it. Now that I've got a really good knife and better leather to use, I kind of enjoy doing it and spending a lot of time on it, yeah. So how many times have you injured yourself doing that? Just the leather work? Anything, <laughs> anything. anything. Um, <laughs> quite a few times. My worst <laughs> injury, so April 2018, I was at an event in Maryland called the Fort Frederick Market Fair. It's a huge 18th century market fair. It's my first event as a vendor. Like I had sold books, I had done some sales to friends and, and, and other people, but I'd never actually set up shop. Um, so I set up shop with my wife. We have a large, like, you know, 18 by 18 tent that we split between its sleeping quarters and business space. And she has the wig company set up there because she also makes um, period correct men's wigs with the hard front they used to wear back in the period. So she was doing that and I was selling books and some woman came and 
bought one, but I, I usually try to keep some books that aren't quite finished with me so I can say, hey, if you've got time to wait till tomorrow or if you're going to be here all weekend, you can pick up a custom book at the end of the event. You know, I'll bind it and make it look just like you want it to. And so that was one of the ones that she she picked out. She was like, yeah, I'd like this paper and this color leather. And I said, all right, come back in, you know, the end of the day tomorrow and I'll have it ready for you. And she leaves and not two seconds later, no, I was cutting the paper for her book and I sliced right through my finger. Like I've still got a pretty nice scar there where I, I took off a, a nice chunk and uh, it was just, you know, blood everywhere. And, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere at some historic fort, you know, in, in, in Maryland. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Uh, so I run to the first aid. They, you know, roll up my finger and they're like, you're going to have to go to the hospital. You're going to need stitches. And uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a veteran, so I use the VA for my health care. So I don't have regular health insurance. And if I go to a hospital, then I, I am always running the risk the VA is not going to pay for it. Because oh, they kind of have the option of like, well, yeah, this was, this was a legitimate need and you weren't close enough to a VA hospital. There was a VA hospital half an hour away. And I was like, if I don't go there, they're not going to reimburse me. So I, I had to drive out to the VA hospital and they fixed my finger and sent me back. I found it felt weird, you know, showing up to this VA hospital <laughs> far away from the event that I was at. So they had no idea what was going on that weekend. And here I am dressed in 18th century clothes. They might clothes. have thought you were from the Revolutionary <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am here to collect my veterans' benefits. <laughs> so you were saying that starting with the Victorian time, that the books looked a lot different or the process was a lot different mm -hmm. what was the what was the major shift that, that's when a lot more gluing started i mean basically when the industrial revolution was going on and they had the means to start mass producing books mechanically that's when everything started changing um there was still some sewing going on and there was modified processes of sewing but they didn't often have the cords um, and it was just a lot faster. Books became cheaper. Books became more plentiful. It was great because it democratized books for people, but it really resulted in cheap books that, you know, don't last as well. So the process that I that I work with, I try to say to people that it usually stops around, and I'm not 100% on this, but I think I used to say like 1830, 1840. You know, if you're going for something after that, then I don't know. I can't vouch for the authenticity of these books. So, so you had said that because of your historic reenactments that you wanted to make them even more authentic mm -hmm. by doing something. So how do you feel like learning this process has affected your thoughts about historic reenactment? Has it changed it in any way? Uh, not about reenactment in general, but about, about, you know, certain elements of the material culture. Like, you know, if you're going to reenact these items and you want to do a really good impression, these are the sorts of things that you should have or these are the sorts of things you shouldn't. And I think a lot of times uh, for reenactors, at least ones that me and my, my cohorts at Locust Grove, most of us tend to get really drawn to a particular area. Of, of history, like my wife, it's, it's costuming. Like she sews all the clothes that she makes for herself and myself. She does them all by hand. Um, you know, she doesn't use a machine for most of the work she does because she wants to do it authentically. Um, so I think a lot of people get into a particular thing, and for me it was books. So now I think that I'm, I'm able to more... Uh, more reliably, and I wouldn't say that I'm an expert by any means, but I can, you know, grab a book and have an idea of when this might be from, you know, without looking at the at the publication date and be like, okay, I think this is probably real or probably not. So it's changed the way I perceive material items and and value material items that are done correctly and well um, for reenactment, because you know it's uh, if you want to do it authentically, you you know you, people usually get really into it. And we want to make sure we're doing everything as, as well as we can. So you had said that you had done a show in Maryland. Are you traveling to other places around the country to show your books not, in that way? Not a lot. Maryland is the furthest out event that we've done. And mainly the only reason I went to that one is because the wig company was going. My wife was like, you're the only person 
that's affiliated in any way with this company that has clothes that are appropriate besides me. So we were, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going. And I'm like, well, why don't I set up shop too? And so it was really just kind of a, a chance thing. And so we went out there again this past year and I set up shop again. So that's the furthest event I go. I've gone, gone to a few events in Indiana, VV, Indiana. I don't know if you're familiar with the mm-hmm. little town of Vive. They've got a cool little um, historic home there. Um, that was a cabin during like the War of 1812. It was a small little, you know, two room cabin, one room on each floor. I've gone out there, but for the most part, I stick around Louisville. I have an Etsy shop too, so I've had several reenactors from different parts of the country buy books through there. I've done commissions for people, you know, in Canada and in different parts of the country. So a lot of it's just been word of mouth or people that come to events around me. Um, I'm lucky to have Locust Grove here. Uh, it's a great home base that has great events, and I really don't need to travel to do a lot of the stuff that other people have to travel for. If you're going to do a book that's not a blank book, so it's a, a published, already published book, are there things like related to copyright that you have to be aware of? Or is it just if you're only going to print books that the copyright's already yeah i I only do public domain works and like i tell people like if i can find a digital copy of it and if it's in the public domain i'll print it as far as i know i'm not violating any laws no one's come after me yet um (laughs) you know i if someone said you know oh could you bind a copy of harry potter and i was like if you bring me your existing copy of harry potter i can rebind it yes but i'm not going to i'm not even going to try to to mess with that you know i'm not going to print anything that still has a copyright on it um these are all most of the books that i print are from the late 18th early 19th centuries and, and yeah, they're more than out of copyright. Uh, and even some stuff older than that, that's generally, you know, no one's going to try and lay claim to that stuff <laughs> as, as intellectual property. They're mostly mostly gone, I think, at this point. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I was asked by Hannah Zimmerman, the marketing director over there, to talk about a few of the events that we're doing because I'm part of the staff in there and I'm here for Strano Books, but I'm also here to kind of represent my, my residency at Locust Grove as well. So, uh, so we've got a summer used book sale coming up. Uh, August 15th is our members preview. That's a Thursday night. So if you're a Locust Grove member, you can get in before the rush. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it's going on all day. Um, so come down there. There's going to be some great old books. Um, I won't be inside with a book sale, but I intend to be there the whole weekend binding. So if you're interested or, or if you buy an old book that is on its last legs, bring it out and I can maybe try to... Try to rebind it for you. Not that day, but eventually. <laughs> that is a nice used book sale, by the way. They had like 20,000 books. Yeah. And a if lot you're, of selection. If you're wondering, like I, I always was wondering before. So, you know, if the stuff doesn't sell, does it just go back into stock? So if you come back multiple times in a row, are you going to see the same stuff? No. If they don't sell it, it gets donated. So every time you come to a Locust Grove book sale, it's a whole new batch of books. I did not know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're always getting some of the antiquarian stuff. That's not the case mm-hmm. um, because those are different people who come in and vend with us. But if it's the Locust Grove part of the book sale, it's all it's all new. Uh, or newish, new to you. <laughs> new to you. Uh, yeah, um, and then so I've got a couple of events coming up as well at Locust Grove. I am doing two workshops, two bookbinding workshops. Uh, one on September fourteenth. That's a Saturday from ten to eleven thirty. I'm going to do one for kids, and so I'm going to ta- teach some kids. You know, teach kids how to like put little simple books together. They're going to be what's called a waste book, which is basically a really simply stitched book with some marble paper cover on it that kids can make and uh, use as drawing or writing books. And then I'm doing a similar one for adults. On the 21st, that's a Saturday as well from 10 to noon. And I'll be doing waste books with them as well. Along with, I'm going to give a little lecture on the history of books and book binding. So I'm going to try and talk about books from like the Coptic Christian era when they first started actually binding books together all the way up until um, the present day. And so you're also at Locust Grove as their summer artist in residence. And when can people find you to come see you making books? Typically, I I like to say I'm usually there Thursday and Friday in the afternoon, like 11 to 4.30. I try to make it in a couple weekends a month. I was there last Sunday. 
Um, but yeah, I usually try to be there three days a week. So Wednesday or Thursday, Friday for sure. Sometimes Wednesday and sometimes Saturday or Sunday. One more event, Books, Prints, Paper, and Art Sale on Saturday, September 28th and the 29th. There's going to be a show with old antique maps and all kinds of different books and, and prints and art and everything as well. So, Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Brandon, and we are going to talk about what we are reading lately. So I am going to start with you, Carrie. What's been going on? So I, uh, I'm i in a deep dive right now with poetry books for kids. So I had mentioned that I read Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. And another book that I read is called Inside Out and Back Again. And I'm sure I'm going to destroy this person's name, Thanha Lay. It was a National Book Award winner and a Newbery Honor book. And it is about a girl who is a refugee in the 1970s from Saigon. And so it's about her father has been, well, he's disappeared. They don't know where he is. And so the girl, whose name is uh, Ha, I'm probably not pronouncing that right because it's got a little diacritical mark over it. She and her brothers and her mother come to the United States. And so they have to live in a couple refugee camps and then they come to the United States. So it's all about uh, whether to stay in Vietnam and then when they move, you know, did they make the right decision? And it was beautiful. I loved the book. I got through it very quickly. And I think part of the reason meant so much to me, and I really got a lot from it, was because of the current situation with refugees coming to the United States and how people look at them, you know. And I guess the thing that reading a book like this really puts you in the skin of the person in that situation. And so I think that's really important. You know, different people have different views about it, but most people are not going to pick up and leave their homes and everything they've ever known for, you know, just any old goofy reason. They're, it's pretty serious, life or death. So it was, it was beautiful. And I'm so glad it's going to be part of what my students are reading this year. So is it aimed towards middle grade, YA? What would you say? I would say, yeah, middle grade, middle grade and up. I mean, it's, it's not, there's nothing overwhelming that kids wouldn't um, be able to handle, I don't think. But it's, it's, again, a book of poetry. And it's, it's more her sort of emotional journey. But I think kids can relate to it, even if they can't relate to the refugee story, just the story of being bullied, you know, Every kid in some form or fashion is made fun of for one reason or another, whether they are Native Americans or, you know, from other places. So I think there's a lot of relatability in this book. I know when you were talking about Brown Girl Dreaming last week, that is a novel, but it's written in verse. Is this the same thing or is it a book of poetry where each poem is a different theme? No, it is a it is a story. All all of the poems are interconnected. So and and that's what I'm trying to do. All of these books that I've been selecting, they are all stories of individuals, but it's all told in verse. So I've got some activities that I'm sort of dreaming up about what the students are going to do. They're going to have to read two 
So I'm going to have uh, options and they're going to have to pick two. But I'm seeing some similarities between I'm, I'm in the middle of another one, but I'll talk about that another time. But there's definite similarities between all the books that I'm picking. So Brandon, I want to hear about what you're reading or what books you might want to tell us about. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm notorious for like starting a book and then rushing through it and then not reading something else for a few months. I'm very uh, like up or down in terms of the amount of stuff I read. Um, but right now I'm actually uh, finishing up Persepolis. I don't know if you guys have read that before. I love that book. I read it in college and I'm reading it again. Uh, I'm part of a book club as well. Same with my wife and some of our friends. And uh, Persepolis is the book we're doing this month. So finishing that up. Uh, but the books I really want to talk about, the couple that I like, I absolutely love, and one that I finished recently, it was a three-book trilogy called The Broken Earth, and it was by an author named N.K. Jemison, and it won, you, you've read it before, I'm seeing you nodding your head now. You've... No, but my husband is a huge, huge fan of hers, so yeah. I've heard him talk about her, and I've heard of that series, but those, I have not read it myself. Yeah, those books are phenomenal. Uh, you know, just kind of give you an idea of the uh, the accolades they've gotten every year, so I think they came out 15, 16, and 17, or, or 16, 17, 18, or something like that. Um, every one of those books won the Hugo Award for Best Novel for the year. And that's almost unheard of to have an in, each individual book in a trilogy win the award. Usually it's the whole trilogy or one of the books, but she got every single one of those books to win the, the Best Sci-Fi Novel of the Year. Uh, it's a phenomenal series. I absolutely love it. Um, it's about like a world where um, there's these constant cat- catastrophic periods of years where you know volcanoes are erupting, the entire planet's thrown into chaos, and there's certain people that have to gift to sort of control the Earth. And it's, it's sort of about that world and one woman's journey through probably one of the worst catastrophic events that were going to ever happen. And in terms of another book that I'd like to mention is I get asked a lot of times by people, what Strano books? Like, why did I choose that name? And I chose it because Villarolo books or Villarolo bookbinding was too much. Um, and no <laughs> one was going to remember that. Um, but also the novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I absolutely love that book. It's set in the period that I interpret. Um, it's about the rebirth of magic in England. Uh, and it's just fantastically written. The woman who wrote it mimicked that period of, of novel writing, like the Jane Austen kind of era, that language and that way of writing. She mimicked it pers- like perfectly. The author's name, is that Susanna? Clark. Clark, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's, pheno- it's a fantastic mm-hmm. book. I highly recommend it if you can... You can, if you want to read like a thousand page it's book, a pretty it's, hefty it's book very it's a pretty big. hefty book it's yeah. very big and it's a phenomenal kind of interpretation of, of a period book and uh the character jonathan strange was like my absolute favorite in the book and i'm italian i wanted to kind of keep an italian link to my book binding um so i went with the italian word for strange which is strano so very that's good. where i got that from because you're very passionate about bookbinding and doing it the way they did in the 18th and 19th century. So, but you've mentioned books that are very much modern, sci-fi and all that. So I guess I was thinking that you would probably read books more in line with the books that you make. So do you just kind of read anything? I read anything, yeah. I mean, I do read older books as well. I like, you know, old old books but a lot of times what i read from those periods and from from older things is is a lot of philosophy i'm like i I took a philosophy degree in in undergrad and uh and i still read that stuff and the stuff that i tend to be drawn to is the older 
you know, there's modern philosophers and everything, and they're still doing great work. But I love a lot of the old stuff, like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations is one of my favorite books. Uh, it's, you know, he was a Roman emperor. And you can find copies of the Meditations from that era. And also, like, uh, philosophers like Hegel and Kant and those guys who were all kind of writing. I mean, Hegel was a bit later, but Kant kind of falls right into that period that I do. He was end of the 18th century. And so you can find some English translations of his works. And that's some of the stuff that I want to have available for sale eventually as well. So I don't tend to mention those just because I'm like, oh, I've been reading Immanuel Kant. <laughs> now it doesn't make me sound like a kind of a little you, bit pretentious. You might be too smart for this show. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about smart, but pretentious, I think, is, is the problem. So I, I tend to go with, with some of the more fascinating, like the novels and stuff. That's what people want to read. I don't think a lot of people want to sit down in the evening and, and, and you know, read about the categorical imperative. It's it's not as not as interesting as reading a good novel like the Broken Earth trilogy or, or Jonathan Strange and Mr. Normal. So the very first book you mentioned, Persepolis, mm-hmm. is it the graphic novel? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a nice quick read. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the art style in it too. I mean, she's Marjane Satrapi is a is a fantastic you know illustrator. I mean, they're very simple, very minimalist pictures, but. It's very easy to tell character from character, despite how basic the drawings are. And I really like the way she does that and the way the the way the panels flow together, the way the, the whole book works. It's just fantastic. That one's on my TBR. I do have a copy of that I one. Know. Oh, the video? Oh, you do? I have a copy of it. I haven't Ooh. read it yet. Oh, you, you have uh, the... Persepolis. The book or the, the movie? The graphic novel. Oh, okay. The, I yeah. have it, yeah. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's very good. Is it both parts? Because I know there's a part one and part two, and you can buy them separately, but they also sell it combined. That I'm not sure. I'll have to check. I didn't yeah. realize that. I'll have to look at my copy. Yeah. If it ends when she leaves Iran, then that's just volume one. Volume two is her teenage years and her adulthood. So I highly recommend both. I mean, it's kind of an incomplete story if you don't read both. Well, I'm parts. glad you told me that because maybe I'd read it and think, uh, where's the rest of this? I mean, it's a good ending. Part one has an ending to it, definitely. She, because, you know, her, her Marjane Satrapi left Iran uh, during the revolution or after the revolution because her parents were worried about her. She used to mouth off to people, didn't have a lot of truck with authority. And her parents were also very liberal Western people who were dealing with the fallout from the Iranian revolution. So she, uh, yeah, she got sent to Germany. Um, and so part one ends with that. And it's uh, it's a good ending. And you could definitely see it as an ending to a story. Like this is this little girl's journey during the revolution and what happens to her. Yeah, but part two is definitely essential to kind of get the full picture. Hmm. Well, Amy, I'm really impressed that you have a graphic novel since Amy just recently started getting into graphic novels. So she's just sort of dipping her toes into that genre. So I'm very proud of you for having one. I think your... Persepolis is a good intro. That's good. To it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, because, you know, there's graphic novels and then there's like long comics, I feel like, and there's yeah. a very big difference. Yeah. I think Persepolis is definitely a graphic novel and not a long comic. Well, Amy, what, what are you reading? So I just finished a David Sedaris book called Me Talk Pretty Someday. And this is probably my fifth or sixth David Sedaris book. And sometimes I like him and sometimes I don't. This particular one, I did like. But all of David Sedaris's books, for the most part, are collections of essays. They're all autobiographical. This particular one were essays that were originally published, like in New Yorker, Esquire, or he got his start on the radio show This American Life. So some of them are stories that he did on This American Life or on BBC Radio. His essays are often about his family or about his move to France with his partner. This one, the first part was about his family, uh, some about his uh, drug abuse. The second part is mostly about moving to France and sort of the culture shock with that and trying to, to learn the language. 
David Sedaris is, he has a sharp wit and that's partly what people like about him. And some of it is laugh out loud funny, but sometimes it can be really bitter and caustic. And this one I felt like was pretty mellow. So I did enjoy it. The very first thing I ever read by David Sedaris was he has a book called Holidays on Ice. And there is one particular story is about an elf being a mall elf. And it's it's quite famous. And so I knew of that story. And so I actually recommended this book to our book club to read one holiday season. And everybody hated it. Because even though that particular story was kind of funny, a lot of the stories were really, what's the word you would use, Carrie? I don't know. I just remember from that one. See, I like that book because I love the story about parents going to see their children in a holiday play. And I I think the thing is, it's not a sentimental story of the holidays. And I think that is what a lot of people expect or want to read around the holidays. And that particular book takes the whole notion of sentimental holidays and turns it upside down. And more like a black comedy yes. kind of thing. Yeah, if you go to the bookstore looking for a holiday book and your pick is one with the name David Sedaris on it, <laughs> I know. you're not getting I what think, you think you are. I think I didn't do a good job of preparing people for what it was that they were getting. And they thought they were getting like... Schmaltz. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you want to try out David Sedaris, I would think that this would be a pretty good one to try. It's from 2000. So, you know, it's been out for a little while. We will be back in just a moment to talk about Brandon's top five. We are back here with Brandon, and we are going to talk about his top five. So my first question for you, Brandon, is what is the top reason to attend or participate in a historic reenactment? Right. So aside from the pretty clothes and the, and the cool stuff, I'd say it's it's a chance to have a very different experience with history than you normally get. I mean, a lot of times you go to a museum, it's hands off. You're, you're looking at things from a distance. You're reading about them. If you're at an event with good reenactors who are who are passionate and know a lot about what they're doing and are, and are accurate in what they're doing, you can have an experience of history that you wouldn't get anywhere else. So it's just a great chance to sort of touch and feel the past and see what life was like more than you can in other places. When you spoke earlier about, you know, wanting to have authentic materials and and make it really like it would have been at that time, are you ever frustrated when people who are talking to you don't notice all the details that you may have put into your books or that maybe your wife put into the costumes? The reason I ask this, sometimes like when I think about movies and you see these behind the scenes and they have all this effort and thought that they put into it. And I think to myself like, oh, I didn't notice that, but maybe I would have if it hadn't been as accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. You, you can tell glaringly when something's wrong. But I don't think that it's so much that people don't appreciate the detail. I think it's, and this has been a new experience for me since I started having my own shop and selling books, is, um, they're, I mean, they're not cheap. They're eight hours of labor per book. I wish I could sell them for less. I really do. Um, but sometimes when people see the prices that I have written down, they, you know, they almost audibly scoff. <laughs> and it's like, okay, all right, how much is eight hours of your time worth to you? You know, so it's that kind of thing bothers me. I understand if people are like, wow, that's expensive. And I usually I'm like, yep. And I explain why. Um, but it's when people go, oh, and it's like, OK, thanks. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of bothers me. Yeah. Um, people oftentimes notice the detail, but it's when people don't kind of appreciate things that are handmade. I mean, everything took longer back then. Um, so it's, it's when people can appreciate 
that's what kind of, I think, bothers me. Well, this is a, a good segue into my next question. What is your top reason, and maybe there's more than one, for supporting local businesses? Because you are a local business person. To me, I think it's, I mean, I could get very political on this. I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> but I think it's keeping money in the community. You know, when you when you go to the store, when you go to Target or, or Meyer or Walmart and buy something, that money's leaving the area. When you when you buy something from me, I'm chances are I'm investing it right back in our economy. You know, it's it's you're spending time with people who are local, who care about kind of the the place they're in. They have a vested interest in the place they're in. The money's staying there, and you really get to kind of get a better experience of how it's made. You know, even if you don't come and watch me make a book, you still you know who made it and you know who's selling it to you. I think it's that personal experience that you don't get with a larger. Um, big company that you get with a local one. What is the top quiet place in Louisville that you could read or write in one of your books that you've made? Ah, well, I'm going to give you guys a guess and see if you think what I might say. (laughs) Okay. I think I know already. Yeah. Locust Grove. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) No, I mean, really, though. I mean, not not just being facetious. Um, If you're out to Locust Grove uh, at a quiet time of day, like I go out there on Sundays, it doesn't open till 1. I'll go out there 10, 11 in the morning and buying books. Uh, And it is, it's just so idyllic. You know, the loudest thing you get is someone riding their Harley down Blankenbaker Lane. And even that's for a second. You know, it's it's peaceful. It's quiet. Um, no matter when you come out, usually, unless there's a huge tour group or an event going on, it's a great place to just kind of like find a shady tree to sit under and just kind of just kind of relax and read or, or yeah, or write in a book that I've made, <laughs> which you can buy at Locust Grove. <laughs> um, you're from Michigan. Mm-hmm. So what is your top favorite thing about Michigan? place or thing to do whatever uh yeah so my favorite thing about michigan is probably well it's it's twofold uh and this is not counting a favorite place if there was something you wanted to ask me about that i would be more than happy to answer that as well um but favorite thing yeah twofold one is that you're 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 always near a good body of fresh water and there's water everywhere in this state when my wife and i moved down here we were just like so you're telling me that the closest thing that's considered water is the Ohio. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I'm not going swimming in that. No, uh, no. So it's, um, so it's the fact that you're always near water. The lakes are beautiful. There's usually good water around you. And number two would be the fact that it's just, I like the weather a lot more. Like, you know, I, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I hated the winters when I was there. And now that I'm down here, I just hate the summers more than I hate Michigan yeah. winters. So like, if I was, if someone said, well, you get such, you know, mild winters, I'm like, I'll take the cold winters in exchange for cooler summers. Like I look at the forecast back where my wife's from, which is probably, if we ever end up moving back to Michigan, we'll probably end up going up there. I look at the forecast there. I'm just like, oh God, you know, <laughs> it's going to be 95 here today. What's the high there? Oh, 76. Oh okay. gosh. Yeah. And, and being at Locust Grove, with which I'm sure there's no air conditioning in, in those buildings that you're working in, being outside there, I'm sure you feel the yeah. heat. Oh this. yeah. Um, but now when I'm dressed and I'm out there, um, you know, bookbinding as the artist in residence, I'm dressed in period clothes. Like that's one of the requirements. And you know, I, I do it so often that I'm just, I'm used to it. I've realized, I realized this past couple of weekends at the Jane Austen Festival, everyone was really complaining about the heat. And I, I was dressed the same way I'm dressed three, four days of the week out there in the heat. Um, I still don't like it, but I'm, I'm just so adjusted to it now that it's like I'm used, used to sweating and used to being warm. Um, but also the room that I use at Locust Grove is close to a foot thick stone walls. And so it, keeps pretty cool in there compared to the outside but it's noticeably cooler in there and you know back then because they didn't have ac they would build buildings at certain angles so that the wind caught them mm-hmm. and so when both the windows in that building are open it's it, you get a good breeze going through there so it's surprisingly not bad specific places in michigan or well you didn't mention them but i would really love for you to mention them where would you recommend people visit 
Uh, well, I think that I'd probably be in trouble if I didn't say Petoskey. Um, that's the city of, it's in the northwestern part of Michigan, not too far from the bridge, the Mackinac Bridge, that is, that separates the lower and upper peninsulas. Um, that's where my wife's from. It's a gorgeous little town. It's a resort town. You know, so when you're, if you're there in the off season, it's empty. But it's a fantastic place to visit. It's got a magnificent view of the bay. Uh, it's the Little Traverse Bay, which goes out onto Lake Michigan. Uh, a lot of great restaurants. And there's a bookstore there called McLean and Aiken, mm. which is an independent bookstore. And it consistently is ranked as one of the best in the country. Um, Ann Patchett has been asked several times about what her favorite bookstore is. And she says McLean and Aiken in Petoskey, Michigan. Really? So it's gotten the Ann Patchett seal of approval. <laughs> wow. This is someone who owns an independent that's bookstore. That's right. That's one of the most popular so, independent bookstores in the country. Yeah, so if you're listening, you're probably a book person. Yeah. And so if you want a reason to drive nine and a half hours to northern Michigan for vacation, McLean and Aiken is a very good reason to do so. And the town that it's in is also very nice. Well, we went to Michigan probably seven or eight years ago, and we went to Traverse City, and we had a really great vacation. There, there were lots of things I loved about it, but the two things that we did that were the most memorable to me was cherry picking. Now my kids were little then, but it was just so fun to see them picking all the cherries and then eating them and they had like cherry juice like <laughs> running all down their faces. And then the other thing was Sleeping Bear National Park. And it was something that I had never imagined could be in Michigan or really anywhere that wasn't in a desert area. It's like this huge, huge sand dune. And you have to kind of walk up to the top, which takes a little while with all that sand working against you. And then you can like roll down, you can slide down, you can run down. It was, it was amazing. You can sit up there and catch your breath like I did when I went. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and did you guys go anywhere else besides the dune climb there? Or because there's the, the Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore is massive. The dune climb is just one feature. I mean, there's tons of trails. Some of them are a lot more wooded. Some of them go through some areas that almost look like those sort of out west dead forests of, you know, bleached trees and everything. It's a really cool place. When we went, we did, I want to say it's Empire Bluff. Mm -hmm. We we went there and then we did that whole, the there's a road you can take and it takes you through. We did that. That was on Amy's recommendation. The other place, because I want to throw something in for Michigan, because my husband and I, we took our kids a few years ago but we thought if we are up this far, we want to go into the UP. So we drove, we stayed in St. Ignace. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you pronounce it. And then we went up to Tequamanon Falls, which was beautiful. Oh, yeah, I've been there. And it's... then went up to, I guess it's Whitefish Point. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's called. And so we loved it. I mean, you cannot beat the weather. It yeah, was amazing. The, the UP is fantastic. It's not a place I'd recommend going in the wintertime. Um, so you drove around the, like, did you go to Marquette, through Marquette at all? If you were going up to Whitefish Point, you probably. Probably. Yeah, I, so I don't know. Marquette's kind of like on the bottom of that little peninsula that goes up the rabbit ear or whatever you kind of want to uh-huh. call it. People say it's a jumping rabbit in the northern peninsula. So it's up there in, in the wintertime. All the ice coming down from Lake Superior like it forms this massive wall of just like uh, on the shore outside of Marquette. It's this massive just jagged pieces of ice. It's amazing looking. And it's there like just all winter. I remember seeing it one time and I was driving out of the town and I was just like, oh my God, this like looks like a foreign, like an alien planet. It's, you know. It's, it's a pretty cool state. I, I'm, I'm a little biased, but I do absolutely love it there. Our last question to you is, what is the most uncomfortable piece of clothing that you have to wear when you're dressing as an 18th or 19th century gentleman? So and I thought about this was the one question I was like, how am I going to answer that? Because in reality, most of those clothes, 
are not uncomfortable. I mean, they're all tailored, they're, they're tailored to fit you. You know, you never went and got clothes off a rack. If you were going to have clothes, they were made for you. You know, shirts were big and baggy because they were the only thing that was really made at home. But, uh, you know, if you were going to get a jacket or a waistcoat or trousers or breeches or any of that, it was bespoke. And so, you know, it, it's not hard to move around and it's not uncomfortable. The only real difference between, in terms of like how I feel when I'm wearing them, I mean, they, they fit differently. So you kind of, you almost have to correct your posture automatically when you're wearing them. You're very much being forced to kind of sit a certain way. You can't really slouch very well. They're not meant to do that. The cravat, I think, is the hardest thing to get used to. That's what I would have guessed. I, well, your answer surprises me because I have to say, just like looking at it, it looks like it wouldn't be that comfortable. So it's interesting to me that, that it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I might also, you know, I, I wear it a lot. I mean, to me, it's like wearing clothes. I mean, I'm so used to wearing that stuff. I do it like multiple times a week. You know, sometimes I'll be doing it for a week at a time when I'm at a longer event. And so I'm really used to doing it and moving it. So, so I think a lot of times, like if you don't dress up and you put on a suit or a fancy dress, you feel awkward because it's, you're not used to moving around in it. So I think it's the sort of thing where if you put that on for the first time, yeah, it's going to be probably kind of hard to wear and sort of weird because it feels different. But I'm so used to it now that I would say there's no real uncomfortable part of it. It's, it's very comfortable clothing. Uh, this was a period that wasn't bad for men in terms of, you know, the, the comfort, except for that darn cravat. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the most different thing from what we wear now. You know, if you wear a suit, most of your neck is still open, and it's not that tight that you're not able to move. But when I'm, like, in the car going somewhere, I have to, like, turn my head in an <laughs> odd way. Because if not, my collar's going to flop over. And, like, it's just, it's really weird. It, it's the most f- sort of foreign thing to wear out of, the, out of all those clothes. I don't know when women started wearing bras. But I'm just going to throw it out there that I hate bras. So there you go. I'm wearing an <laughs> uncomfortable one right now. So in the past, in the present, probably in the future, bras. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, women back then wore what was called long stays. And so they weren't a corset. They were they were similar. They were shapewear, but they weren't boned like a corset is. There was a wooden busk down the center that was designed to, as my wife says, lift and separate. And and it does definitely. That's what it does. You got a big old piece of wood between. You know, it's that sounds horrible. <laughs> that sounds like a torture. I don't think she says it's pretty comfortable, especially when she's like doing a lot of hand embroidery for a long time. Because if you relax, that busk keeps you up. It doesn't oh. let you slouch. Oh. So you can like relax and just you you keep your posture up, and it's it's relatively comfortable. She says. The stays aren't, they're, they're corded. So there's cords running through them to give them a little bit of strength, but they're not as rigid. She seems to think they're more comfortable than some like more Victorian corsetry and stuff mm-hmm. because it is a lot um, more natural shaped. Hmm. So maybe I just need to sit up straighter. Maybe that's my whole problem. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's my posture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe you start wearing period clothes. It'll force you into the proper posture. It'll make me appreciate what I'm wearing now. That too, yeah. <laughs> Well, Brandon, it has been so much fun having you here. We have learned a ton about bookmaking, and we really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad to come out. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I had a really good time doing this. If you'd like to order one of Brandon's books, you can find his online store, Strano Books, S-T-R-A-N-O Books, at Etsy.com. Listeners, we have a little favor to ask of you. As a new show, we need help getting those reviews on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help new listeners find us in their searches. If you like our show, the best thing you can do to help us grow is to leave a review. We appreciate your support. Thanks for joining us today. We are under construction and currently switching sites for our webpage. But for now, for show notes for any episode, you can find them at our current blog site. The address is a little long to say, but you can find it on our Facebook page or by Googling Perks of Being a Book Lover. 
Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. And if you are a member of a book club or are sharing reading in some way and would like to be a guest, please contact us at any of these sites as well. You can also leave a message on our Perks line at 502-509-7736. We always want to hear from fellow readers. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.